the only thing that shatters dreams is compromise. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Sawson behind the scenes. This quote leads us into our guest today, Austin Einhorn. Coach Einhorn is the owner of Apiros team, where he offers the movement path less traveled to help athletes reach their full potential. And today we, we dove into some of these movement paths that are less traveled and how we can really get our athletes to reach the full potential. One of the things that I love coaching coach talk about is how you've never seen an unathletic lion. And there's no other species out there where you would call them unathletic because if they're unathletic, they're dead. And yet we have humans all over that call themselves unathletic, that, that have these injury problems, that have these things. And Katrina just takes an evolutionary look at training and how if we move like that a thousand years ago, we get eight, we'd be supper for an animal. And now, now we just use it. We just accept it as a norm. We accept these aches and pains as a norm. And it was just really cool to hear a totally different approach to how we should really approach sports performance. He talks about the extinction of injury and the evolution of performance. And he has a new book coming out that I'm super pumped to get. But man, if you guys want to dive into a movement rabbit hole, this is the podcast for you guys. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood. All right, well, Coach, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you here. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk with like-minded uh, and open-minded individuals like yourself. Yeah, my uh, my coworker Stu Bourne, he he mentioned he was the first person to bring you up into my world, and he's like, "Hey, you you'd like this guy's stuff," and he he brought it up and he showed me your page, and I, I instantly geeked out. Like, went into all your posts. I'm like, I, I love your approach to training. You know, that's actually quite. Um, I'm grateful to hear that, knowing that you are in the uh, American football world. That is one of the most like brutal and ass backwards uh cultures in sports today so um the fact that you're you're coming to me from that background is a testament to how open-minded and willing to learn you are so i really appreciate that yeah we, we, we talked you talked about the ass backwards approach and that as soon as you said that like we're gonna dive in deep to that but before we get to that point can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself a little bit about your background and kind of how you got to the point you're at today sure um you know, looking back, it all makes perfect sense that I'm doing what I'm doing, how I'm doing it. But along the way, um, I had no idea what I wanted to do, just like most kids. School and the average upbringing in America doesn't <laughs> lend itself to kids figuring out who they are and what they want to do. But if I were to look at my life from an author's perspective, I've always been fascinated with movement. I've always had a keen eye for slight differences. I remember one story that I've said a few times, but it's kind of a, a hallmark moment for me. And I was about nine or 10 years old and I'm playing soccer and I'm watching this guy. Well, he's way faster than me. So I'm watching him from behind and his feet are turning inwards, like way more than any other kid on the field. And I'm just so curious, like, is, is why is he doing that? And why is he so fast? Is that helping him that he'd be fast? Or is that, is that hurting him? Could he be faster? And then, you know, I've always just loved watching motion. I would stand outside or stand in my house and just look out the window, watching cars go by, watching people go by, watching, um, just watching, just observing, being somewhat of a, a social scientist. Once I got to college and having played pretty much all through my childhood, uh, every sport that I could get my, my hands on, um, I started specializing in volleyball and that brought me to college and there... I had never lifted a weight in my life. And freshman year, I was told I needed to start lifting, but we'd have a strength coach. And so I was so embarrassed and ashamed to do anything wrong in the weight room because, I mean, let's be real, the culture of the weight room is not very forgiving. And so uh, I was afraid to do something stupid and, and look bad. So my freshman year entailed just going around all the machines where I knew I couldn't do anything wrong. And I would just move weight on the machines until I got tired and just do these cycles that got me a little bit stronger. I was in talks for freshman of the year and I realized, oh, wow, this, this could actually help me. Um, I slowly started dipping my feet more into what strength training outside of practice could do for me. Sophomore year, we lost and uh, we went into the final four of our national championship ranked number one and we lost, we got third place. We, we were, we choked. That loss 
was the next leveling up moment for me where it's like, okay, if the way I get better is in practice and I don't have much of a say of how practice goes, what I can control is what I do outside of practice, which meant I started learning dietary things, which I had no idea what I was doing. I'm reading men's fitness. I'm trying to weed through all the garbage on the internet. Um, but I finally got over that fear and says, I'm going to try whatever I need to do to become better. That year led to me being a first team All-American and further cemented my place or my belief of like, oh, what I do off the court is really useful. And then I went head first and into it. And as I said, our team didn't have a strength and condition coach, but because I was the guy in the gym all the time and optimizing everything off the court, my coach made it a mandate that every player on the team had to work out with me or be my workout buddy at least twice a week. So I'm being an unpaid, unofficial <laughs> trainer, um, you know, by the age of, of 20 or so. And still in the back of my head is like, huh, what do I want to do with my life? Not knowing it's right there in front of me. And fast forward a few years, I'm in Germany playing professional volleyball and I'm miserable. I put all my eggs in playing pro sports for at least three to five years, prolonging the real life thing. I was so miserable. I learned that why I liked sports is the people that I was with, not the sport itself. And so it wasn't fun. I had no reason to be there. I quit and I went through like a quarter life crisis, um, just staring out of windows on trains that lasted 15 hours long, trying to figure out what do I do? I eventually have to leave Europe. I can't vagabond forever. All my friends were going back to school, going to graduate school for something. And so I was like, I guess I'll just go to PT school. That seems like a reputable career. So that was my loose intention. I get back stateside and an acquaintance of mine says, well, they have an opening as an aide at a physical therapy clinic nearby. You would be fantastic. You should go interview. I get the job. And within a few weeks, I'm like, I hate physical therapy. This is not what I want to do for the rest of my life. The therapists seem miserable. The patients don't even want to be there. The patients don't even care about getting better. Surprisingly, you know, there were times where a patient actually did their, their homework and we were just, oh my God, you, you actually want to get better. You, you were here because you want to return back to normal life. So I took that as a paid internship and the boss was like, dude, you should get into strength and conditioning. That's a much better fit for you. And that was just a major light bulb moment for me where I didn't realize this could be a career. How I entered that is similar to how I've approached uh, a lot of my life where I've been blessed with seemingly innate, uh, innate ability to find flaws and principles and programs. I tried to get a refund on my college math class because they failed 60% of the class. And I was like, I'm, this is my product. You sold me a bad product. Please return my several thousand dollars that I paid for this class that I have to repeat. Um, and I've taken that mindset of, of finding loopholes and challenging current modalities into performance. And what does it mean to be an athlete? And I started as everybody else does with the NSCA garbage and learning whatever everybody else is doing with the intention of, okay, I want to get my athletes to be a better athlete. They will, should score more points. They should be hurt less and they should be happier. And pretty quickly I'm realizing like what I've learned is not actually getting my athletes better. They're not, they're not getting past more opponents. They're not scoring more touchdowns and they're still getting hurt. So everything that I'm trying to do, I'm failing at. And so that's when I really started questioning the norms in this field and, and how do you actually get better at scoring touchdowns? How do you get better at throwing a ball, hitting a volleyball? And there's this like massive misunderstanding that I can't believe people don't, don't get that strength and conditioning coaches, I find often be like, oh, if I do this exercise, they're gonna be a more agile athlete. And that's just a load of bullshit. Um, skills, skills are taught and learned very differently. Maybe you increase their physical potential for agility, but the way, the way their practice is designed is gonna dictate whether or not they are more skillful. And so I started separating the, the two um, niches of, well, how do, we, how do I get this athlete to have a long and healthy career? That is good. And how do I get them more skillful so that they can keep getting, uh, keep getting spots on teams, they can keep getting paid. And that's when I started working on some skill development stuff and the, the performance side or the movement things. 
I started in, in DNS, dynamic neuromuscular stabilization, which preached a very perfectionist mindset of this is the one and only way humans need to move. And if you don't move this way, then you're going to break. And well, you're sorry about that. We're not so fragile. And, and having such perfect um, perfectionist tendencies, I think, build more fragile athletes. So to, to wrap up this rant, um, the answer that I've been looking for had been in front of me all along that I had always watched how things move from animals to cars to stars. And I needed to look into evolution. And evolution has created movement patterns, just like it has created races. And, and a squat has an ancestry. A hip hinge or deadlift pattern has an ancestry that was born from certain environmental tasks. And so that's the, the philosophy that I currently abide by, where I go evolution first, and then I add any invented modality after the fact. And, and I have no, I have almost nothing that I, I villainize anymore. Every movement that I've seen has its right place. It's just making it be a seamless fit for, for tool and problem, for, for answer um, and, and question. I, I'm pumped right now that we're going to be able to dive into a lot of things here because that's something we talk about a lot on this podcast is it's never the tool that is, that is the wrong issue. It's the, it's the fact that that's the only tool you keep in your hand and you just continually swear by that. And we, we talked about it in the football sense, because I think that's where you probably see it the worst of, of any field is like the, the tool is the barbell, you know, like the, that that's your tool. And that's the only thing that you can do to increase your athlete's potential. And like you mentioned, like there's just so many, so many different aspects to it. And, and my thing is like, there's so many disconnected strength coaches of like, if you actually put yourself on that field, and this, this was the big thing for me is like going back and, and looking at my own, when I played, like, like what were the, what are the things that held me back? Did, did, did that barbell squat ever actually, cause I was traditionally like growing up that meathead, like the guy that swore by the Olympic lifts, the guy then that swore by the West side method. And like, this is the answer. This is the answer. And like you said, I would, I would go out there and I would watch a guy that did none of that. I know he skipped his Tuesday lift. I, I know he skipped a Sunday lift and he flew, man. Like he looked like a beautiful mover. He, he didn't get hurt like I got hurt. I was like, wow, like there, there's got to be more here than what we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, if you just look at the news, I mean, a few weeks ago, we had eight ACL tears in one day in the NFL. If that's not a red flag, I don't know what is. These are the best, supposedly the best athletes in the world. And they're built like paper mache. And there, there's a lot of, it's a multifaceted problem. Um, but I call me foolish, call me too optimistic. I really think that we can be a completely injury-free population. Non-contact injury is what I'm referring to. The reason why is, again, if we look at evolution, if you got hurt, you died. We conquered the entire world on foot. And we, if we got hurt, we didn't have surgery. We didn't have anything to repair that. That was a life or death injury. We hunted all sorts of different animals, gigantic uh, woolly mammoths. And if we got hurt, we're starving. And not only that, the entire tribe might be starving. So to think me as foolish optimist, I think is, is wrong. I'm just more wide, I have a wider perspective of what humans and all of life has done over 500 million years on land. Yeah, you're gonna get me into the rabbit hole again, coach, because the last, I've been like, listening to Graham Hancock and just listening to people outside of the field. And when I start to do that and I start to get out of the bubble that is strength conditioning and stick, take that outside perspective, you look at like the things like you said that humans did throughout their entire like evolutionary lives, you know, like for millions of years and the thousands of years, the things that we were doing. And now we have that athlete that has to come in and like foam roll for 30 minutes before they do anything, you know, like has to do this certain uh, mobility exercise before they can even get into a squat. And you look at that and you're like, man, like, what is that telling you about what we're doing? You know, like how yeah. fragile is that? Like what happens? Like it's the, the old saying, but what happens if you're getting chased? Like you are so dead. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not any of these athletes fault. It's not even a lot of these coaches faults. I, I honestly blame culture. It's a cultural problem that no one bats an eye at this stuff. It's, it happens so often that it's normalized, but the only reason why it's not, considered some uh schizophrenic reality is how many people have bought tickets to this delusion it just doesn't make sense that we believe or some people think that oh my knee my acl tore because of this one instance 
that is so rare to happen. People have been buckling their knees inwards all the time and they just don't get hurt. And then one day it happens and they think, oh yeah, it was this one instance and this has been a habit for years and nobody pays attention to it because they're too damn focused on moving the barbell from A to B, putting the ball in the hole, kicking the ball with some idolized technique that they bought in some expensive course. And we are so disillusioned to the athlete and to the sport that is right in front of our eyes. We don't need to look anywhere but what's happening right in front of us with just a smidgen more awareness and a little bit more curiosity. And with that, so we, we talk about these problems and we, we talk about the issue of where culture is. And you, you mentioned before, like the ass backwards approach to training, especially in the football world. And I know you, when I watch a lot of things that you put on Instagram, and I'm sure that's just a, a clip of what you do, but, but we look at a lot of the crawling patterns that you do, a lot of the climbing patterns, some of the rolls and these type of things. Like what are some things that the listeners can do or somebody can do to kind of change their program and start to look a little bit deeper and start to implement some of these things to help with what we're doing? Sure. Um, you know, the biggest thing that I'm pushing is climbing. Uh, I love it. I mean, God, it's so much fun. And it's so much more fun than just doing 10 pull-ups in a row. One thing would just be starting to hang from a bar, passively, actively, whatever. Get your arms overhead and suspend yourself. That is what designed our shoulder. Um, a fact that I love to repeat often on other podcasts is that the rotator cuff is terribly named. It's, ta it's named, I assume, because somebody put some um, electrical doodad on the shoulder and asked them to flex it a certain way. And they're like, oh, it rotates the humerus. Let's call it the rotator cuff without understanding of how it emerged in nature. And the only primates that have rotator cuffs, the only animals that have rotator cuffs are ones that brachiate or swing and climb and hang on things. So or in particularly swinging, bears don't have a rotator cuff, but climb, climb trees. Other things that they can do is as simple as it is, walking is so important for me. It's one of the things that defines us. It took us 500 million years to develop upright walking and we've shelved it for technologies and chairs and uh, motorized scooters and, and skateboards in you know a few decades, a few years. So walk well, walk smoothly. You should be able to walk two hours without being sore afterwards. Walking is one of the best things that we do. And so walking is my diagnostic from athletes. I make them much more aware of it and I ask them to, to walk often and be aware of it. As cliche as it is, and I feel like I'm repeating or repeating um, other messages, you should be able to rest in a deep squat. It's nothing new, just do it. You should be able to rest there, hang out. You should be able to bend your legs in different ways and go from the bottom and change direct directory, uh, directions. The squat evolved to give you a little bit of evolutionary history. Um, in land, there was one joint. Uh, so a whale's fin has the same skeletal structure as we do, just in different shapes, but it doesn't have a joint at the elbow. And once uh, a lungfish started walking on land, those joints reshaped themselves to have three joints, the ankle, the knee, and the hip. Every land animal from insects to spiders has those three joints. They are supposed to bend if you are on land, and they're not just meant to bend straight up and down like we do in the gym all the time. The squat is defined by, uh, in my definition, is bending all three joints in all sorts of different directions. That's why the the hip capsule and the ankle are so complementary in nature that you can have this, this weird crooked diagonal change of direction and still bend all three limbs. And so that is, is one simple way to start improving just your squat pattern. And that'll change how your whole body works. If you just stop only squatting up and down, who gives a shit if it's a safety bar squat, a front squat, a back squat, that is not enough diversity to think that that's enough diversity of a squat pattern to prepare you to cut at your max speed on game day is just, I mean, it's the type of foolish uh, tomfoolery that is, that is in our culture today. So I want to shatter these beliefs and get people to realize there's such much better ways to do, do things. Um, I'd say those are the big ones, the big three, walking, deep squatting, squatting differently and just hanging or climbing. Uh, we can go into more nitty gritty detail, but those are the, the basic movement vitamins that I prescribe to everybody that comes in, regardless of age, sex, or sport. Yeah, I mean, that, and it's you, it, it, the, the number one thing that I, I've shown people from your page so far has, who, who, what's the big offensive lineman that you work with? Wes. Wes, oh, yes. That's a good story. Man, like, because every time, it's, it's all, like the excuse I hear all the time about the hanging, about the like, some of the crawling, some of the rolling, and some of the bending, it's like, oh, I'm too big to do that, I'm too big to do that. And I, I for sure use that in my past. 
at like when I'm doing stuff, like move, oh, I'm just too big for that. And you watch this guy move and you're like, oh my God, this goes back to you. Like you've never seen an unathletic line. It's like, it, none of, like that's not the issue. It, it's, it's our training and like how we've developed ourselves up to the point. You watch this guy move. He's 320 pounds, can do a single arm pull up, can hang from so many different positions, can rotate and flip himself. Like such a beautiful mover. And if he can do it, like all of us out there can be able to get our bodies into those positions and do that. Yeah. So, you know, Wes, Wes grew up drinking the Kool-Aid of powerlifting and thought just if he wanted to be a better football player, all he's got to do is get his bench numbers higher, get his, get his squat numbers higher, and that's it. Um, that led him to ter- two herniated discs and a few, uh, few other issues. Um, but this is our fourth year working together. He continues to excel. Some of the quotes that um, I've asked him that I'm, I'm able to share is that, and what I'm about to say is, is the unicorn quote of playing the NFL. He feels so good. He doesn't even think he can get injured anymore, a non-contact injury. His only injuries in the last few years have been from contact. Otherwise, he's been completely healthy. His herniated discs are no longer a problem. His, his feet, his ankles, and pretty much everything is dissolved away. And that's not for my attempt to just cure him from any pain. I'm not a therapist, nor do I make any claims to, to cure people of injury. I just get them to move how we were evolutionary design. Positive side effects might include feeling better and not getting hurt anymore, but that's not my intention. Removing pain and removing injury is, it's out of my control. What is my, under my control is affecting how people move and them understanding how they move and changing that. And when we, we talk about, and you had this quote, is like the balance between the mindless play and the grind of that powerlifting world. When you are programming, especially for like an elite level athlete, somebody that is like at the upper echelon of what an athlete is able to do right now, how, how, are you, how are you balancing these things? How are you progressing him? Like, what is kind of your approach to, is it just, you see, all right, he, that is an issue with him. Let's say it's a squat pattern. Let's say it's a hang pattern. That's an issue. We're really going to attack that focus on it. How do you, how do you go about working with these things to where you're not getting into that structured grind? Like, this is what we're doing A to B powerlifting. And it's not just like show up and do whatever you want type program. It's a, it's a balancing act for sure. Um, any programming that I do is not done weeks in advance. It's done a few days, maybe. I'm looking at movement quality first, where bones are positioned. And that is my, my first and foremost lens. Then I think about any sort of weight or speed element. Um, I also balance with, there's shit that he has to do from his team. Some stuff we like, some stuff we don't like. He's still gonna have to get it done. And uh, it's not terrible terrible thing to do because it's going to prepare him for those stresses in the, in the season. Um, for the listeners that maybe do not know, it's not all sunshine and rainbows in the strength and conditioning NFL. Just because it's the NFL doesn't mean the staff there knows what they're doing. And this isn't just a reflection of, of Wes's staff. It's um, a story that repeats itself with a lot of the NFL players that I've worked with. And, and not just NFL, it's, it's across all, all, all the board. Um, the staff that gets hired by professional organizations are typically people who look good on paper and interview well. Um, back to the balancing act or how I go about architecting our sessions, it's a triage of what stands out compared to what should be there from evolutionary standpoints. That to me and my, my eye, um, there's things that I should see in certain movements that are not there. So I'm looking for what's missing. And then once I see that, then we go about it in a few different ways. So for instance, um, I can tell a lot just from watching people walk. When Wes showed up this year, we spent six weeks together in this off season. And within the first day, based on his gait and a few other movements, I was able to deduce what his body needed and what it's lacking. And in particular, it was how his spine was rotating and side bending. So we paid a lot of attention to his obliques. And just because I'm such a big fan of evolution and quote unquote natural movements, does not mean that I abstain from uh, isolated bodybuilding type movements. So I knew that his obliques had more opportunities for him. When he changes direction, the physics, the inertia is such a challenge. His upper body is so massive that when he needs to move left in one nanosecond, his obliques and his entire abdominal wall need to carry his shoulders with him. And I noticed that this is one of the things that had uh, stones that were unturned over the last few years that when he tried to run block or change direction or keep up with a linebacker, 
there was this lag in his spine. And I picked this up just from his walking. So then we attacked his obliques in every which way possible that it wasn't just one isolated uh, bodybuilding type looking movement. It was how does climbing affect his obliques and how do we how do we do that? How does a single arm scapular pull-up or single arm pull-up engage his obliques? And that's one more that I'm a fan of because the lat becomes such a demanding force when he has to pull that it demands the oblique to be a secure ankle anchor point for the lat. So I love designing exercises that force the adaptation that we're looking for just because they're so hard. And athletes tend to like that too. They like to test themselves. And so it's a win-win for me is I'm getting the very specific adaptation maybe in one acute area, like the obliques in this instance, they get the autonomy and satisfaction of seeing themselves progress through something extremely difficult and their body's in a better position to move on the field. This approach with Wes to continue to talk about how it has affected him is last year, he said uh, one of the more impactful quotes, he's like, I don't even need to try to play football anymore. If I just take care of my body, it does anything that I want it to do, which allowed him to then be one of those top 10 statistical offensive linemen in the league and play every single game without getting hurt. So these are the effects of taking this more evolutionary and, and the bastardized word, but holistic approach. When people are watching this, so like what, because this is something that's interesting to me, what is keeping people, more people from doing this then? It, it, if we're seeing the results with the super high level athletes, like why, why are we still kind of stuck in the dark days of strength conditioning? I mean, it has more to do with human psychology, ego and attachments. People's look at any job that has more jobs, uh, security issues or more career insecurity issues. And you'll see people more attached to their modalities that they're essentially saying, I refuse to be happy unless I use this one technique because this technique is where I invest my self-worth and that is what puts food on the table. There's a lack of trust in themselves to admit they don't know everything under the sun and that what they are doing could be wrong. I live and die by that to a, almost a point of my own detriment where I don't give myself enough credit for what I have done and what has worked because I'm, I'm excessively modest of like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just figuring this stuff out. Like, and I think people aren't realizing that what they're doing isn't getting the effects that they want or they're measuring the wrong things just because someone's bench goes up or the velocity on the bar goes up. I don't think necessarily means they are a more skillful athlete, but I think it really comes back to ego and attachments. Yeah. And you talked about that too, of like, what gives us the pat on the back, you know, like when we can bring the head coach or we can bring whoever hired us these numbers that say, Hey, like, uh, we added numbers to their bench, or let's say we're a little bit more advanced program. We added velocity to their bench. Like, look at how, look at these numbers, these clean cut numbers to whereas you, you have to go to them with a spreadsheet and say, Hey, they move better. Like, uh, all right. The head coach, like, what does that mean? You know, like, how, how do you quantify that? How do you do this? And that that's where I see the issue. A lot of times is we're getting the job, like you're getting the job done. And now how do you I quantify that to somebody that needs the numbers and you just got to break out of the mindset of needing that number, you know, like leading, needing that pat on the back when you know, you're doing the job, you know, you're doing what you're supposed to do with that athlete. You can have numbers. I mean, I think I'm, I'm trying to find good uh, research or things to test in the gym that will correlate more with better athleticism, but the numbers are the stat sheet. The numbers are people, people enjoying practice, you know, the numbers are, no, I don't want practice to end. I can, can I keep working on this? I really want to, I want to play more. Can I do this drill one more time? Like that's the stuff that we should be focusing on admiring on. Yeah. And we, we, we talked about, I think it was Zach Elder we brought up and he was like that, that he, he works with a lot of baseball athletes. And like, he's, he's like, my stat that I look at is batting average and like how many hits this type of thing. And he's like, the reason the, the reason that's not usually looked at, and we usually look at the hex bar or we look at these, the, the instant results is because it's instant, you know, like you don't have to wait that long to get it. You don't have to wait for the season to be over to look at these stats. And again, I, and it keeps coming back to what you said about the ego is it's so much easier to get that pat on the back from everybody around you. If you can show them the instant results of that hex bar going from 400 to 500, you know, that instant result where it's way harder to take that step back and look six months later, like, all right, my athlete didn't get hurt. He was a top 10 offensive lineman and he likes practicing. He likes his sport now. Yeah. And he actually, I would say he plays football as a hobby and he's a mover as a full-time career. That's what he loves more. 
you know, um, at one point he wanted to be a professional powerlifter, and now when he's done with football, that is, and now he's he's throwing around the idea of like, man, after football, I'm just gonna lose a bunch of weight. I'm gonna try to be the best rock climber that I can be because he enjoys that so much. And isn't that? I mean, for me, that is the goal. The practice is what's under our control. The training is under our control, and then we get to go test it in the Coliseum of Sport, where winning is out of our control. Yet it's what everybody focuses on, and they do so with an egoic uh, mindset, or that's what they're trying to have to stranglehold on, and it's not working. We don't have control of our outcomes, but we do have control of our practices. We do have control of our training, and what I found is when I put all my eggs in what we can in the basket of what we can control, we've had, I've had fantastic results. It requires a little bit of trust in yourself and me to to do this approach and. Sometimes that trust is too big of a leap for other people. They see things differently and they're unwilling to give them up. And that's okay with me. I don't care if I work with a thousand people or 10. I am invested with the people who trust me and I trust them. And that's the relationship I choose to foster. And something else that you talk about is the kind of skill acquisition part of this. And we talk about becoming a better mover. And this is something that I'm really trying to formulate my thoughts on too, but skill acquisition overall to me, like we, we learn a skill in the gym, maybe it is climbing. Um, but we also have to learn the skill of the the sport itself, you know, in different positions there and being able to learn these multiple spots, like how, how does skill acquisition, how do you approach skill acquisition in, in with your athletes and being able to foster? Cause one for me, it is the first thing like I try to do is make sure the athletes interested in acquiring skills, you know, to where, to where they're, they're actually, like you said, they're enjoying practice. They want to do one more rep. They want to learn how, how to do new things with their body, how to do what the sport requires for them with their body. But how, how do you kind of approach that? Yeah. Excellent point. I'm so glad you brought this up because this is the second half of the equation with, with a lot of the athletes is, um, and I can't give away too much of my secrets because a lot of this is going to be in the book and I want that to be where it's, it's first announced. So to continue the story with Wes, and then I might transition to some of the Aussie rules football players that I see that, that fly over. So this year, um, or in years past, we've focused on what do I see in the gym that I know, or in my diagnostics in the gym that I know are gonna show up and how he plays football. I'm looking at how his organism can solve movement problems. So if we go with the oblique example, what we saw on the court or on the field and what we were talking about on his film that we would analyze together is he would lose precious nanoseconds that matter a ton in NFL. That's the difference between him making a block and his quarterback getting sacked. The difference between him getting paid and him getting fired. Um, so when he would come off the snap, when he went left, he had a harder time having his shoulders move with his hips. So those he would go into a lateral spine bend and his, his organism did not have the capabilities of moving his spine as one unit. So first is making him aware of it. It's hard to change what you're unaware of. This showed up in film that I would then show to him and we would then agree in a very collaborative process. Yes, this is what we should be going after. Then there would be instances before COVID where I am the defender and uh, I'm 6'4", 210, which is, is about as light as a grasshopper for him. I've literally been thrown in the air from, from a lot of my NFL players and injured. It's funny, I didn't get injured much in college. And then once I started working with football players, I've been hurt a few times. So I would design environments and make believe plays that forced him to have his shoulders travel with his hips. So we, we isolate and simplify the environment where he can be aware of it, making that change in his own skeleton in real time, as he gets more proficient in this new movement skill, I increase chaos. So it might start out what you see with athletes too often, which is nobody going against them and just the grass and cones and them, and that's it. Which is a good starting point, but that's not gonna take you all the way there. You need to increase chaos or sport specific complexity. So then I would have maybe myself coming in at a slower speed to see if he can maintain these movement patterns that we know uh, or we agreed on will lead to better performance. 
and then we speed things up. I would add more players. Eventually, uh, I would try to get as much uh, athletes on the field at once when the, the schedules allow for it so that we can approximate something that looks like football in the NFL. And, and yeah, I mean, that I think paints a good picture of how I go about skill acquisition. I can't, the, the mistake that I made in the past is just because his obliques looked good walking and in the gym again, that therefore he would automatically just birth this new golden egg of a skill on NFL Sunday. That's the yep. mistake that a lot of coaches are making. And it's, it's so true because I see the same thing. Uh, we, we have a guy that his, his kind of main thing that we've been focused on with him is, is he has a right ankle that kind of like when he sprints kind of collapse and kind of just falls over. And you mentioned that like when it looks good, like we can do some pogos, we can do some jumps and we, we start to increase it. And now it looks good in the pogos, it looks good in the jumps. We're like, oh, like if you had that simplistic mindset, now it's fixed, like it's good. We put him in a, um, so he's a rugby player. We put him with the rugby group and we're, we're working some one-on-one -on -one situations and, and we're trying to score with him. We're trying to do stuff. And when he tries to make a little cut or do something like that, it's, it's a lot of times when it's, he knows the opponents better than him. That's when you really start to see that ankle collapse and you start to focus on these things and start to put them in situations. And it's like, all right, now, now, now we see this. Now we see that it's not actually, it's not actually working. And now, now we dive into why. And we're like, what are you processing? Like, what are you seeing? What, what, what's the environment that makes that not work for you? Like, what, why is that happening? And continuing to progress these things. And this is where it, it kind of bugs me when everybody says, well, we, like you just lift in the weight room and let the sports take care of itself. Let the practice take care of itself. And it's like, have you, have you watched a, have you watched a football practice? Like, have you, have you seen this? Because that, that's not what they focus on in football practice. Like football practice is almost 90% like technical and tactical like we're working on coverages and understanding the coverage. We're not working on scoring, you know, creating. We're not working on these actual aspects that are rewarded on game day. We're working on understanding a cover two, understanding the things that you, you have to understand. You have to understand your position, but that's what the two hours are spent on. And it just seems like such a disconnect for people that say that. It's like, you're not actually watching like what's happening. Like they're never put in these positions in practice, but they are in game day. So now you have the weight room where we're squatting a bunch. You have practice where they're working on cover two. And then you never have anything where they're, they have to be put in that one-on-one -on -one score situation. Totally. I mean, one, one story that I'm reminded of is there was a linebacker that I was working with, NFL linebacker, that had a knee surgery in college. And part of the problem with the therapy culture is they have this standard recipe of this is how you repair uh, ACL, MCL, whatever. And that's it. And they don't pay attention to how that movement changes on the field. And I mean, you got to be as high as a kite if you don't think how they go on the field is going to change after knee surgery. So this guy had been compensating for a knee surgery for almost four or five years. And until me, no one had noticed when he has to decelerate and change direction, which is his job as a linebacker, he did it with only one leg. He would skip over his right leg and use predominantly his left leg to slow down. You don't need a PhD to know that. You should use both legs to slow down. You just need to pay attention. <laughs> I mean, it just it baffles me how little attention coaches pay, pay to these things. So first I made him aware of it. I showed it to him on video that he's not using his right leg when he slows down. And I discovered this by competing against him in one-on-one -on -one tag scenarios that are similar to what he has to do on Sunday. Then all I did was we designed games and environments where he had to decelerate on his right leg. And being a professional athlete, he became aware of his body extremely quickly and was able to make these changes um, over a few weeks. And then, you know, biology does what it does. It adapts. His knee got stronger. He used both legs to slow down. And when you use both legs to slow down, you're in a better position to change direction and attack a running back or wide receiver than if you use one leg to slow down. Yeah, I mean, it's not rocket science. <laughs> yeah, and like you said, uh it's just kind of the, the, the paying attention and not, not keeping that kind of standardized program. Because you talked about it in the PT world and the rehab world, but it's also, I mean, that's very much in the strength world. It's like freshmen are doing this, sophomores are doing that. And at the end of the day, it's, it's just paying more attention to what our sport is and what we're doing. Yeah. And I think honestly, part of the problem is why we don't pay attention to others is because people don't pay attention to themselves. People are robots going through their days you know, doing the same thing, completely unaware of what they're doing. They don't know how they're, what they're saying. They don't think about what they're saying. They don't know why they're, they're getting emotionally upset at, at losses. They don't realize that 
they're yelling at their athletes because they're actually terrified of losing their job, not because the, the team lost. I mean, losses happen in sports. Get over it. You don't need to yell because you're so insecure in yourself. And people just don't notice this. So they don't notice this system themselves. So they don't notice it in other athletes. Once you start noticing it in yourself, oh yeah, when I jump, I favor this. I wonder if other athletes do that too. Oh, when I get emotionally upset, it's because I'm afraid of losing my job. Huh, I wonder if athletes, professional athletes get emotionally upset because they're also afraid of losing their job. Huh, it's, I mean, once you just start becoming aware of your, your own emotions, your thoughts, your actions, why they happen, so many amazing things can happen. Coach, <laughs> oh boy, you're gonna get me done this whole rap. We went the whole last podcast. We had I had a guy on, and we talked about the entire. You talked about robots. We talked about the zombie apocalypse, and the, the same thing. And because that that's one of my main things with the athletes. Oh, it's already in. here. Zombie apocalypse isn't coming. It's already here. Yes, and and we have these, and this man, <laughs> we have these athletes that come in, and like the blank face look on their face to where, the, like you said, they haven't and paying attention all day throughout their, throughout their entire day that they've had to sit in a class and be told what to do at all moments, like stay in this box, follow these rules, read this book, do this thing for their entire day. And we get them to our session. And the first thing I tell them is like break rules or be creative. And, and in the first time in that session, the first time they have to do that, you should see the look on their face. They're like, what, what'd you say? Like, uh, well, like what, what's happening here? Like I have to wake up, I have to pay attention. I have to make my own decisions. But like, yeah, like, like this is, this is, and then once you start to get them rolling, you start to see, who they are and you start to see them wake up and you start to hopefully see them apply that to their day. It's so, it's so cool. You know, one of the biggest challenges for a lot of athletes is uh, autonomy. I ask every athlete, every session, what do you want to do today? Some of the younger kids freeze like a deer in headlights. And with the athletes that struggle with this autonomy more, I will just sit there. 10 or 20 minutes until they decide and not do anything until they make a choice because it's their athletic career. And I don't care what it is. We can have a tea party. We can talk. We don't have to train at all, but it has to be their choice. And I think a lot of coaches could benefit by surrendering some control to make it a collaborative process between athletes and coaches, any kind of coach, any therapist, trainer, whatever, almost every psychological uh, theory that has been shown to help mastery has autonomy as one of its major pillars. And, and Even some of the professional athletes, I ask them that, like, I don't know. I just want to do what you want to do. And you mentioned the, the sitting there for the 10 to 20 minutes. Cause I think that I do the same thing. It drives the athletes nuts the first time. Like you make them do that because I think, and this is from just from what I've experienced is other coaches, other teachers will, will say like, say that to them. And then their cop out, they won't answer, they won't do something. And the teacher doesn't really want to give up that autonomy. The coach doesn't really want to give them that autonomy. They just say it. And then when the athlete doesn't take it right away, then the coach makes a plan for them. And when you actually sit there and force them to do it, I, I mean, I, that, that's one of the coolest things is you force them to do it 10 to 20 minutes. Like you said, you just sit there and stare at them or just dig into making sure they come up with a decision and come up with what they're doing for that day. And they finally make that decision and just, the, the light bulb goes on in their head and now they're their own athlete making their own program. It's pretty cool. The same thing goes for feedback from, from youth kids that they work with to pros. They, they cling on their own self-worth based on the coach's feedback and evaluation of the session. And then their self-esteem either goes up and down based on this extraneous coach's evaluation. So one of the things that I've also been a fan of with people who think could bolster their self-worth a little bit more after I get to know them is we do something as skillful and, and requires a lot of awareness and um, willpower or whatever. And they look at me and they're like, either they're silent and they're looking at me waiting to see if I say anything or give them an evaluation, or they just ask me like, Hey, how was that? And what I, I try to do, I can't do it all the time because I lose awareness as well sometimes is, how do you think you did? What did you do well? Where was your, where was your body in space? Oh, you don't know where your body was in space. Well, that's one of our goals. You need to know where your bones are in space. It's your body. Go ahead and try again and then tell me you know, how you think you did. So I put the evaluation process as much as I can in, in their hands, not in mine. 
And I just guide them, I offer them options and I want to show them that there are doorways of opportunities to give them access points to enhance their athleticism. Yeah, and I think that was one of the biggest eye openers for me in like my past year of training is making sure because and I think that was something where subconsciously like you, you would see it, you would notice an athlete look at you for those instructions. And then like instantly when they look at you, you want to give them something like, you want to give them that. Yeah, because it feels good. That, yes. I mean, that's the reason why we got into coaching. Like, oh, they're looking at me from help. Yes, I, I get to help them now. Dopamine, dopamine, dopamine. I am worthy. I'm coach or athlete. You need to do this. And this is why. And oh, pat myself on the back. I'm going to continue to get paid. Oh, thank God. Yes. And being able to take that step back. And that was huge for me. This, I mean, this past year was just like, uh, like you said, like, why are they looking to me? Like this, this has nothing to do with me. Like I'm, I'm just running them and putting them in these situations. This is their, their body. I mean, their sport, their four years, like whatever it is, like it's theirs. Like stop looking to me. Like I, I should not determine any of your like self-worth, any of your, how you feel during this. Like I, I'm here for guidance and here to create that. And then the other thing was like, what am I rewarding too? Because that was, the biggest thing growing up, like the strength coaches that would reward, like lifting heavy weights, like, and it, that's, that's, I think that was part of the culture aspect of it is like, why do people want to lift heavy weights instead of be better movers, be better skill acquisition, be more creative? Like, why do they want It's because the coach sits there and when somebody lifts a heavy weight, they bring everybody around it and they say, awesome job. That's good. Like you listened to my program. You did that. Oh, and it's, I, so I was like, it's such a primitive thing. Like all the cavemen surrounding the one cave guy lifting the biggest rock. And then they just all beat their chest and, oh yeah, you are now validated in the tribe. And this, so now like, what as a, like, now as a coach taking a step back and looking at that, like, what do you reward now? Are you saying nice job when the guy moves the nice, like biggest weight? Are you saying nice job for the, the most creative mover or the guy that's looking to explore different options, different movement options? And that's just, this is a whole nother rabbit hole. There's something that like, if, if we want it to happen, if we want to move the culture of what sports performance is, you got to start rewarding and you got to start to show the athletes what you actually value, not what you say you value. Absolutely. We are a culture that is admiring the wrong things. Well, coach, that was awesome. You want to transition to the rapid fire rounds here? Sure. All right. The first one, and this one I'm really interested in diving in with you is your favorite books. Uh, and for you, I'm going to ask like favorite books that have allowed you to dive deeper into this evol evolutionary approach to training. So people that are kind of trying to get that different look at it like you are they can read up on some of this there aren't any books until mine um and i wouldn't wish upon anybody to read the comparative anatomy textbooks that i have mulled through um yeah there there honestly isn't any evolutionary textbooks about movement um or comparative anatomy or compare there's comparative anatomy textbooks but there's not about comparative movement and so until my book comes out there's not much about the evolution of movement patterns I could tell you other books that I recommend often to my athletes, but they're not, they're not about sports. I'll, I'll take those. We, we usually do non-sports books. I was just interested in diving deeper selfishly into some of that evolutionary movement, but we can, we, we'll just wait for your book on that one. Yeah. Um, Illusions by Richard Bach is probably number one for me. I've read that probably 10 times in the last year or two. The other most impactful book that I've read was Lila by Robert Persig, which is the sequel to his more popular Zen and Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Lila changed how I think. It talks about evolution. It talks about thinking processes. It's not for everybody. There are certain chapters at the time that I was, I yearned to know what he was talking about and I would read the chapter over and over again. And I had no idea what he was talking about. It was just way over my head. It's one of these books that I've, I've held near and dear for years and gone back to a lot. And now I, or a few years ago, I started to really understand it. Um, but it's, it takes a commitment. You gotta really want to know what he's talking about. Um, the other one that recently has made it into my top three is Awareness by Anthony DeMello. And that one, I mean, it talks about awareness. It's talking more about awareness of your own life, but it works for awareness of movement, awareness of athleticism. You can take it to any any aspect of your life and it it holds water. I like that. That's, that's a good list. Whenever it's three books that I've never even heard of, that's usually when it, it's a really, really solid list. Illusions is so good. You'll probably read it in a day or two, max. I don't know anybody that has taken more than three or four days to read it. Almost everybody picks it up and just burns through it so fast. 
awesome. And then they're left with a ton of questions. And then they come back <laughs> and be like, awesome, why would you give me this book? I have so many questions now. And then the next one, and this is, this is something that I want you, I think it will be a really good one, but it's, it's, it's what's kind of next for you. What's that next big goal? What's that next thing you're trying to accomplish? The book. Yep. Um, I've been working on this every day for over two years now. Um, and recently I kind of surrendered to the fact that the publishing of the book is kind of like winning a championship. It's a little bit out of my control. What is in my control is that I can wake up every day and write for several hours until I feel that I've, I've given the best that I could and produced the best book possible. The working title right now is Movement Banking, um, but that's going to change. The, the subtitle and kind of the theme of the book is the extinction of injury and the evolution of performance. And that's the goal of the book is how do we get rid of injuries and how do we become better athletes? If anybody wants to sign up to learn um, when the book will be published, you can do so at movementbanking.com or you know just follow me on Instagram and I will post about it uh, relentlessly once it's ready. I'm ready for it, coach. I'm, re I'm ready for that book. After that uh, is I'm gonna start offering courses to teach what is in the book and teach these ideas because I know some of the discoveries that I've made about movement and evolution, just, uh, well, they're discoveries, nobody knows about them and I'm having amazing results. And so I feel like sharing them. Awesome. I'm ready for that coach. I'm hyped for this book. I, as, when I, as soon as I heard the, you talk about the, it coming out and I think it was one of your older Instagram books. I was like scout, like trying to find where the book was and I was like, oh, it's not out yet, but I'm ready for it. I'm hoping soon, okay. uh, but awesome. I'm enjoying the process. I can promise you, I will give you the best book that I am capable of producing. I love it. And then the very last question of the podcast, and this is when all the book writing stuff is over, all the coaching stuff is over, but what do you kind of want your legacy to be? I don't know. I don't really think about legacy. I don't, I don't care if um, I'm talked about hundreds of years after I die or I retire or not at all. I guess I want where, where I'm headed with this is, is this. There are certain times in life where I realize, oh, my life could die right now, or I could die right now. A turbulent plane recently I had to evacuate because of fires in California, all sorts of scenarios. And at those times I reflect and am I happy with how I've lived my life? Yes. Do I want to make any changes? Maybe here, maybe there, maybe not. And I guess when I look back at any moment in my life, whether I'm about to be buried back into the earth or not, um, is to be happy with whatever has happened in my life if that carries on to some stories that gets passed on outside of the conversation I have with myself, great. If how I've lived my life has helped other people, fantastic. Um, but I have no, no attachment to any sort of legacy or passing down of information. Uh, my life does not depend on that. My happiness does not depend on that. Oh, coach, this is awesome. Thank you for being on. Of course. Thank you for having me. I, I love being on podcasts and, Hopefully that uh, I've helped some people with, with my ideas. If anybody wants to find out more, see what this stuff looks like. Um, I post to uh, Instagram sporadically. Sometimes I go in wild bursts. Sometimes I disappear for a few weeks. Uh, so that's at apiros.team, A-P as in Peter, I-R-O-S.team, which is also our website, www.apiros.team. Boom, and we'll get that in the show notes. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood.